Our scripture reading today is from Luke 8, 40 to 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And, they came, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, the people pressed around him. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace." While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Emma. Uh, And thanks, Matt, for your prayer uh, and leading us through the service. Um, Obviously, I am not Um, Gary. Gary is with his family, um, grieving the loss of his father, but grieving with great hope. And so continue to pray for Gary um, this weekend as he is with them. Um, And as Matt said, um, Hudson Belk has been a part of the congregation here for uh, about, well, a little 11 and a half years and work with Seed Sports as a chaplain at Joe Gibbs Racing. And I'm thankful just to be a part of this church and get to serve. And so... um, I get the opportunity to preach today, and we're continuing our service, our sermon series, going through the Gospel of Luke. And we spent, we spent the beginning part of the year following the church calendar of Epiphany and celebrating and looking at who Jesus is and looking at his life. And now we have entered into the season of Lent, and we'll continue to go through Luke, um, picking up these, uh, these themes from the, from the Lent season. And so... We're going to follow Christ and his journey to the cross. We're going to use this time uh, to really uh, to feel and to lament and get in line with the reality um, of our own sin and the brokenness of this world uh, and our need for repentance, but also uh, preparing ourselves to celebrate the cross and the empty tomb. And so, if you will, let me pray and uh, we'll jump in to this passage. Father, we're a desperate people in need of you. Uh, In this season, 
we ask Spirit, would you make us more and more aware of how desperate we are for you, but how sufficient you are? Would you do that now, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. This week I was at Joe Gibbs Racing and saw someone I hadn't seen in a while, and they're walking up to me, and I said, hello, and they're about to say something else. I was expecting the normal, how are you, or what's been going on, but they said, hey, have you been training? And that wasn't the question I was expecting, and I hadn't seen them in a while, and I said, no, I have not been training. I wasn't even sure what exactly they were referencing to. They were like, you should be training. I said, well. I'm not training. Um, she's like, well, you know, what race are you going to be doing? I said, I'm not doing any race. She's like, why not? I said, well, my body's just breaking down. And she didn't believe me at all. And she, she said, oh, that's not true. And I said, yeah, I'm just, I can stay active, but I can't really train for anything. And anyway, so she kept pressing me on it. So I was like, all right, well, here's my list. I got something called Haglund's deformity. It's the thing on my Achilles where I got calcium buildup under. If I run too hard for too long, it gets all flared up. I got a hamstring uh, strain. I've had these chronic kind of back issues that keep flaring up. Um, and she's kind of looking at me like, okay, well, what's really holding you back? So I, I kept going. I said, even the other day, or actually first week of October, I was playing wiffle ball with a little six-year-old, which might have been my problem, and I was trying to steal an extra base and slip and fell and put my hand down, and now I can't even do a push-up because my hand's hurting so bad. And she kind of just nodded her head and said, hmm, what should you be training for? And uh, maybe there really are. I probably could train for things. I probably could change diet and certain things. Um, but anyway, that's, that's really just my story. But when I was leaving that, I was thinking, um, I am so thankful for my health because I actually can be active and I get to do a lot of different things. But also, it did strike me, my body is breaking down and it's not going to be the way it was when I was 22 years old. That is the trajectory I am on. And uh, I, I realize that. Um, the reality is our, all of our bodies break down. Um, and I remember the first time I really became aware of that reality when I was six years old, I had spinal meningitis and was in the hospital for a week and hadn't been able to walk. And the first day I was actually on healing and was able to walk, I remember walking, taking my dad and walking all around uh, the hospital uh, there in Charleston, South Carolina. And as I, the whole time I'd just been in a room, so I hadn't seen everybody else. And as I was walking around, I began to see all the other kids that were in this children's hospital battling cancer neck braces, wheelchairs, and as a six-year-old, and I remember going to like the play area, uh, and some of the kids that were just in there but could not play with the toys that I was even getting to play with, and I remember as a six-year-old, and I still have those images, um, man, life is broken. Physical brokenness is real. Sickness and death felt near, I remember, in that hospital as a six-year-old, and I knew this is not the way it should be. And I still remember that feeling. Actually, a family friend brought me a, a stuffed animal while I was in the hospital of a lion. Uh, and it's a lion that I've kept ever since I was six years old. And one thing that lion reminds me of is God was gracious to me and brought healing to my body. And I'm thankful for life. But it also reminds me of those walks on that, camp, or on that uh, children's hospital floor and just seeing the reality of brokenness. And it's, um, 
And it's something I think we can all relate to, but something we also realize that even as a child, I knew there's this idea of shalom, that we should be, that this idea of, of flourishing, of our bodies working the way they ought to be, of relationships being the way they should be, um, that there's something better than what I was experiencing. Kelly Capick, he's a professor at Covenant College, he says this, that the common human craving for shalom frequently surfaces most intense, intensely sorry, in our darkest hours. Some claim that such yearnings are simply wish projections we create, hopes cultiva- cultivated to keep us sane while we suffer. Yet such a cynical view of human Futility leaves us all open to despair, not just when we suffer, but even when things are going well. Is there really no difference between shalom and chaos, between pain and relief? Now, the Bible makes it clear, even as we confessed in our confession of sin, we were created good and just and to be in right relationship with God and his creation. We were created for his glory and we were created for shalom and this is not a figment of our imagination just to get through life. And we were created in the image of the God of Shalom. And yet all of us know, and even as a church here, we have been touched by physical brokenness and death in real and deep ways amongst our congregation. We've become acquainted with grief, the loss of children, unspeakable pain. Parents, friends, miscarriages, chronic, chronic illness, to even the less tragic, but still real and painful, sick kids all the time, doctor visits, and the list could go on. We've all, we all have a story of uh, physical brokenness, and we all long for shalom. We know we're created for more. When I say the word shalom, this idea of flourishing, physical, relational, spiritual flourishing, what's a picture that comes to your mind? I like to ask that a lot of times in like small groups, just to kind of hear where people's minds go to. Sometimes it's out to the lake fishing. For me, it's on this beautiful field, perfectly cut grass, not a hole, not everything's perfectly lined. And there's a lot of people, this perfect community where we're all like relating one another and competing in a sports game against each other, but doing it rightly. And my body's working right and everybody's bodies is working right and everything's just raised up, shalom. Now that's still myopic, it's a smaller picture of shalom, but that comes to my head. What comes, what comes to yours? We were, we were created for shalom. Sorry, I'm, oh, there we go. Um, and so as we d- d- go dive into our passage this morning, as we journey, make our way to Holy Week, uh, we're going to look this morning at physical brokenness and ask the question, does God care about our physical suffering? So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to look at it, the outline's going to be, we're going to see the reality of our physical brokenness, our weakness, sickness, and death, our need to lament our physical brokenness, and then the intimacy and power of Jesus in our physical brokenness, and then ultimately, the resurrection healing that's found through the cross in the empty tomb. Recently, I was talking to a friend who had lost a family member, and they were confessing how after the loss of their family member, it was really hard to pray. Not because they didn't believe anymore, and not because uh, they, they didn't think God's truth was real, 
but at a deep heart level, at an emotional level, um, there are real questions about, does God care about physical suffering? Really? Does our physical suffering matter to God, or, and does suffering matter at all? Does bringing my pain to God actually do anything? Those were real questions. In the context of our passage this morning, we meet Jesus, and Jesus had uh, more and more uh, crowds were gathering around him. He'd given the parable of the sower. Uh, he made his way out into the sea with the disciples where he calmed the storm. And on the other side of the sea, he heals a demon-possessed man, and now he's returning. And these great crowds who had heard of all that Jesus was doing were gathered. And let's dive back into our passage in Luke 8, 40. It said, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, and they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, and the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So Jesus comes back across the sea, and immediately he's met by a big crowd, but he notices at his feet, in the midst of this huge crowd, is a man, desperate, on his belly, laid before him, pleading, a ruler of the synagogue, pleading for healing. Obviously, in the context of our, our passage here, our mind goes to, who is this man? Well, this man would have been high esteemed, respected in his community, probably had financial means, possibly a Pharisee, but he was in charge of the public meetings in the synagogue. And with all his good qualities, all that he had going for him in life, he was actually undone. If you looked at him, you would have said, this man's got it all. And yet he comes undone, desperate, needing Jesus to act and needing Jesus to act quickly. And so he begs Jesus to come to his house and Jesus responds quickly and they're on their way. And yet they don't get too far before we're introduced to another person who's in desperate need. We're introduced to a woman who'd been bleeding uh, for 12 years. We're introduced to more physical brokenness, more sickness. And doesn't this feel how life can be sometimes? It's one thing after another, one sick child to the next sick child, sick child, one doctor's visit to the next. But we're introduced to this woman. And so now we ask, who is this woman? Well, this is a woman who for 12 years has had this bleeding um, issue. She probably at once had financial means, and now she has had to spend it all seeking healing, going to doctor visit, to doctor visit, to doctor visit. But like physical pain and suffering often does, it affects more than just our bodies. It affected all of her life. For this woman had drained her bank account, but she was also an outcast in her community. She, have, she would have been considered unclean because of her discharge of blood, and she would have been removed from all communal life. Leviticus 15 tells us that she would have been seen as unclean, and anything that she touched or anyone that she was around would have been unclean. And so she was in isolation for 12 years. Lack of relational intimacy with other people, not to mention just the physical pain 
that she was going through. Obviously, her life was a lack of shalom. I don't think anyone here, in the same way that this woman experienced what she was going through, has experienced the same as far as its impact on communal life. But we don't have to think too far back to say three, four years ago, if you somehow found yourself around a crowd of people and started coughing, what would have happened? Everybody dispersed. Get away. Put on a mask. Get yourself in isolation. Work wants nothing to do with you for two weeks. And even your family and all the plans you had with your family, they're like, yeah, we're going to celebrate without you. You stay home. Yet this woman, this was her normal life for 12 years of isolation, um, of being unclean. Um, And so here in our passage, we see two totally different people from two different spectrums of life, and they're having to deal with the reality of their physical brokenness. And the truth is, none of us have been able to escape it. Every person in this room, we're broken. We're broken physically. Just like I, and deep down, I was hoping um, somehow my kids, you know, I know the sin nature is a real thing, but maybe the sin nature really won't affect my kids too much. And well, it has. And deep down, sometimes I thought, I know people's bodies start breaking down when they get to, you know, in their later 30s, into their 40s, but maybe that'll miss me. And like I said, no, it's reality starting to hit in. We, we all find ourselves in this place, but we do always like to push that away. We all live with this idea that death is coming, physical brokenness is in our life. Um, and that was another good thing about COVID, or a reality about COVID. Sorry, death wasn't a good thing about COVID. But the reality of death was always before us. Like you turn on the news channel and there's, what, there's always that death count, right? Um, death is uh, something that we have been able to push to the side a lot in, modern, uh, in our modern culture because of modern medicine. And we thank the Lord for modern, modern medicine and what a gift it has been and how God has used it greatly. But it's also made us live as if we're immortal or we think that or we can control life and control, can control all of nature. And re- the reality is that's not true. I was just looking up some stats, just wondering what was the child mortality rate 200 years ago. In the year 1800, 46%, 46% of children did not make it to the age of five. That's crazy. Now today it's like 0.7%. Um, percent, and we still grieve even that reality. And yet because we live in this world like that, it's easy for us to not pay attention to our Uh, our pending death. And yet that is a gift that the season of Lent is for us. It's a gift because like like in the, um, the liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer on Ash Wednesday, it says, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. That's not the end of the story, but it's important for us to remember that Lent is an opportunity for us to feel our weakness, our frailty, to name our suffering, and also to repent of the ways that we don't take our physical suffering to Jesus. Um, Because often, like we talked about in Sunday school, when we're in pain, that's all the way we see life. Um, And we don't see anything else. And I was amazed one time listening to Tim Keller when he was going through chronic pancreatic cancer. He said, you know what my biggest battle is? My battle with cancer is real. And he wasn't trying to minimize how horrific cancer was and the sadness of death. But he said, my biggest battle is my own sin and what I do with this, what I do with my, my pain. My biggest battle 
was what I do with it. And so I want to ask us, where is the reality of physical suffering impacting your life? So name that. What do you do with your physical suffering? And do you see it as an invitation to get desperate to come to Jesus? Because naturally, I think, we either deny it, we say, it's only a cold, it could be cancer, or maybe if you have cancer, it's not that cancer, it's only this cancer. Uh, we can deny, like, hey, I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm going to get through. Or we despair, and there is no hope. All we see is the brokenness that's in front of us. Or we get to self, uh, uh, like a self-drivenness, where I got to control this. And we do have agency. If you're sick, you should go to the doctor. But sometimes we think, oh, I got to control everything. And the reality is you cannot. No person's been able to figure out the cure to death itself. And so what do you do with that? And so I want us to think about that this morning and see that our passage invites us to follow Jer uh, Jairus and this woman to Jesus because they are desperate people. And that's what we talked about in Sunday school. The thing that stood out this morning that, man, they were desperate to get to Jesus. And there were crowds around and everything. And some of those people were kind of onlooking. There is an intensity to Jairus and the woman that I got to get to Jesus because I am needy. And actually, if you get to Jesus, if you really come to Jesus, that's what you have to be. You have to be needy. You have to say, I'm in need of you. And so the second point is that we need to lament the reality of our physical brokenness. And I use the word lament. The, the word lament is not in our passage, um, but the idea is present. And I'll use Mark Rogop's definition of lament. He says that it is a prayer in pain that grows in trust. It's basically understanding your helplessness and with all of your helplessness, bringing it to Jesus. Your pain, your sickness, your questions, your complaints, and bringing it to him and then asking and staying with Jesus, being near him and trusting yourself to him. Now, the idea of lament is a lot. We find it a lot in the Psalms, which is God's prayer book that he's given to his people. And actually, 40% of the Psalms are laments. And the general pattern that we find in the Psalms of lamenting is that we turn to God in prayer with our pain. We turn to God. So the difference between what makes lament a Christian thing as opposed to just being like, I'm sick and I don't like it, whatever, a complaint, is it's not a, just a, purely a complaint. You come to God, and then you bring your complaint. Lord, I am sick. How long am I going to have to be sick? Where are you, God? I am hurting. God, where are you? We bring our pain. We bring it to God. That's the second thing. We confess our need, and then we humbly, boldly ask, Lord, would you show yourself to me? Lord, would you heal me? And then... We entrust ourselves to God. We grow in trust as we abide, as, we be, as we're near. See, lamenting is a gift to Christian discipleship that's often overlooked. And what, I'm call, what, what this passage is calling us to is not just looking to Jesus as this miracle worker that is like we, we uh, you know, write a wish list for Christmas and we send it to the North Pole and Santa Claus is going to read it and he might check some of those off for us. No, no. Um, that is not what, what lamenting is. 
It's bringing our real self with our real questions and our real pain to the real God and abiding there and being near there. And we see this is what Jairus does as he runs to Jesus with his pain. His only daughter is dying. He boldly asks, and he pleads that Jesus would come to his house. And at first things, hey, this little formula, Hudson, that you're given is working pretty good. Things are going good for Jairus. And then let's go into, um, into our passage because he goes into the crowd um, and hey, they're on the way to the house. This is all good. But then Jesus is touched and he asks, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. And I can imagine what, what Jairus is thinking already. My daughter is dying. All these people are in our way. We got to get on the move. And now you're starting a conversation about someone that touched you. Let's go, Jesus. Maybe like some of the husbands after church today, you know, you've had a few conversations and you're ready to go and your wife has one more conversation. Or maybe it goes the other way around. The wife's ready to get the kids some food. Jairus is ready to go. And yet, Jesus stops. Um, and Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Shalom. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So let's stop here. Let's put ourselves in Jairus' shoes. How would you have responded? How, how would I have responded? Like I said, Jesus, let's go. Come on. Why are you stopping? I understand that she's bleeding, but my daughter is dying. Don't you get the difference? Like, aren't we live in the same reality, right? Like, my daughter is dying. Let's Go, you can come back to the bleeding woman. This makes no sense. God, if Jesus, if you were good, you would understand what I'm telling you to do. Are you not good? But Jesus stops and is having this conversation. And you can imagine the conversation. It wasn't just a quick thing. When he asked the woman to come forward, I'm sure she then started to say, hey, I had all this money. This was what my sickness is. I went to this doctor and then this doctor and then this doctor you won't believe it. And none of it healed. And then I saw you and I came to you and this is what happened. And this is what it was like living as an outsider. And the whole time Jairus is just sitting there listening to this conversation, knowing his daughter is dying. What would that have been like? Do you ever feel like you're in that place? That would have been hard. And Jairus, though, he stays. And he sees this girl who is bleeding healed. And Jesus called her daughter. And seconds later, and then told to go in peace. And then seconds later, he, or actually, I don't know the time frame. Then he hears a messenger that says, your daughter is dead. Your daughter is dead. He has just seen shalom brought into this other woman's life. And now everything but shalom has just taken place in his life. Now's the chance for Jairus to say, okay, this Jesus thing didn't work. It didn't work. I'm done. It's a chance for him to despair. And yet, in the face of his ho hopelessness, what happens? He hears the voice of Jesus. Verse 50. Jesus, on hearing this answer, 
uh, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, she will be well. Jesus speaks words of hope and truth in the midst of Jairus' hopelessness. Mark Rogop says this, he says, Hope does not come from a change of circumstances. Rather, it comes from what you know to be true despite the situation in front of you. In other words, you live through suffering by what you believe, not by what you see or feel. While the circumstances of life have a narrative to them, there is a biblical narrative underneath. That he needed to remember of the true story he's a part of in the midst of what he was seeing right in front of him. Now, we'll say that's, that is a big... Um, the body of Christ is important when it comes to this because when we're in our suffering, we need people to come around us to actually help us feel and see and remember the true story that we're a part of. We need to be the body of Christ for one another to speak and to act those words of love, of hope, of truth in the midst of our struggle. Jairus's Jairus's possible fragile faith was powerfully met with Jesus's words of hope. And so he stays. He stays with Jesus. When he was told to leave, he stays. He stays connected to Jesus. And that's where the power happens. And that's really where the power even of lament, that's why I use the word lament, when we bring it to Jesus and we stay with him, with our real pain, with our real questions, and we're reminded of what we can truly cling to, of the truth that's actually clinging to us. I love in Lamentations, you got the prophet Jeremiah, and he's talking to uh, the people of Judah. And they had been a people and been given all these promises, and God's presence was in the temple, and they were secure um, by the wall around Jerusalem. And the enemy, the enemy, Babylon comes in and destroys their temple, destroys their wall. They don't have security, disperse their people. They're not a, they don't even seem to be a people anymore. All in front of them looks bleak, destructed, destruction. And yet, in the midst of that, we have this book of Lamentations. And right in the middle of it, the highlight of it, what does Jeremiah do in the midst of all that? He calls to mind the better story, what he knows to truly be true. In Lamentations 3.21, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, which is what we just sung. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and he's clinging to it. Therefore I will hope. Jeremiah had to get back in line with what he knew to be true and the story that he was a part of because he was so easily could be dominated by the circumstance in front of him. Many of you know actually Bob Dyer, who I work with, and know that his daughter has been battling cancer for the last three years. She was actually, she'd worked with us. She'd helped us with administrative stuff at Joe Gibbs Racing on the ministry side. And she was going to Prague uh, to be a missionary with Surge. Or what, yeah, I think it was still Surge. And then she was diagnosed with cancer. And the last three years have been an up and down roller coaster of different treatments. Looks like the cancer's gone. Then it's back. And following her blog um, has been a, a hard thing and a beautiful thing to hear her bring her real questions, her real hurts, her hopes, 
her doubts, her struggles, but in the context of relationship with God and his people, um, and God has met her there. And even coming off of another treatment and going in for another scan just last month, this is what she wrote. So I love your prayers. I love prayers for peace and prayers that there would be no disease in my body. But as I always ask, if there is disease present, even if I get the worst news possible, that I would still be able to believe in God's goodness and his kindness to me. He always shows me this in unique and sweet ways. So I know he'll continue to do this. Um, but I would love for you to join me, please, in, in asking for this again tomorrow. And she actually got a tattoo that says, even so. These are acknowledgement that this has been brutal. This is bad. And this has been horrific. And yet God is with me. And God is good. And there is a greater story of healing. And Jesus has met her in real and meaningful ways. And Jairus in our passage received those words from Jesus. And he saw the intimacy between Jesus and the woman. You know, Jesus heals the woman, or she touches him and is healed. But then he actually calls her out. Why do you think Jesus made the woman come back to him after she had been healed? I think there could be many reasons. One, just to acknowledge that Jesus isn't a Santa Claus wishlist thing. He came for a relationship with his people, not just a quick healing and then she's off. Because you know she's going to get sick again, and death was still before her. Maybe it was so that she could make a public profession of her faith. And there's probably an aspect of that. Maybe it was also to show the crowds that, hey, I've made this woman unclean. She's good. She's been clean. But I think also that Jesus could invite her into this intimate encounter with her, where he could dignify her, call her daughter, and pronounce salvation over her. Because that's the way he does. You hear the intimate word daughter. You were once an outcast. Now you're a daughter of the king of the universe. You're in the inner, inner circle of all history. And he says, your faith has made you well. This great Greek word, sozo, refers to both physical and spiritual healing. Shalom. Go in shalom. Which reminds us that our physical brokenness is a result of sin. Not your not your particular sickness. A particular sickness might not be related to a particular sin. But we struggle physically because sin entered the world. As Romans 5 says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because of sin. And so this woman experiences not only meeting her physical need, but gets even deeper, gets even deeper, forgives her. She is now an eternal child of the king of the universe. And Jairus' daughter actually experiences the same thing. Another person who would have been unclean, just like this woman, because of her death, Jesus enters into. Verse 51 said, When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter in with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Um, probably because these are the people that actually believed. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Laughing probably like Sarah when she got the news of Isaac's, that Isaac would be born. Jesus was about to do the impossible. And so taking her hand, he called her child. Or maybe little girl or sweet girl or my darling. 
arise. And he spoke words of life that raised her back to life. Both these women who were unclean and who had the, the effects of sin through their physical brokenness got an appetizer, an appetizer of the ultimate healing that they would one day receive fully. Because no man, we'll, we'll never be able to conquer death. We'll never be able to conquer all of our sickness, though we've made great strides and be able to actually care for our brokenness. Jesus is the only one who can meet that greatest need. And these girls, these women, girl and woman, got a taste, a taste of his forgiveness. But at the end of the passage, it says um, that Jesus told them to tell nobody. And why was that? Because his time had not yet come. The body of the perfect lamb was still to be broken so that we could be healed. A perfect sacrifice's blood would be shed so that we could be spiritually, spiritually healed and forgiven. So let's stop there and let's pray and then we'll sing, There is a Fount. Father, we confess that we are in desperate need of you. Brokenness has impacted us in, in so many different ways. But as someone said in Sunday school this morning, well, that brokenness is a needed reminder to say things are not the way they should be. And we need restoration. We need your forgiveness. We need you to make things right. And you are our only hope. Remind us of that, we pray. In Jesus' name.